Come on, church. Is he worthy this morning? He's worthy. Let's pray. Father God, you're worthy. We're so grateful to be your gathered people today, celebrating on this Christmas Eve your worth. And so, Lord, would you be honored? Would you be praised? Would you be made known, made much of, made great in our songs, in our singing, in our preaching, in our fellowship, in our gatherings, Lord, not just here in New Spring, but Lord, every Jesus preaching church, Lord, would you be seen and experienced in this season as more people are saying and talking about the name of Jesus right now on the planet than at any other time in human history. Your story is being shared. The good news is being put on display. And so, Lord, would you be made great we give you the highest place. We give you the honor and the praise. And Lord, bless us in this time. In Christ's name we pray. And we say together, amen. Come on, put a one more good hand clap together and a shout for Jesus. And then you can give a high five next to you and grab a seat. How are you? Good morning. Uh, last night, it's so funny if you came last night, so many people always land by saying good morning, even in the evening. And so I wanna say, hey, Merry Christmas and uh, Happy Christmas Eve, y'all. Good to see you. You look great. Hope you're doing well. Hey, before we even get started, I want to just do a couple of things. I want to welcome you. And I know this time of year, we got family and friends that are not always here with us. And so, New Spring, could you help me welcome all the first-time folks, co-workers, family, friends that are here joining us? We're grateful that you're here. Merry Christmas on behalf of our staff and our volunteers and our pastors. We're so grateful that you leaned in. I hope you're encouraged. And I want to I want to tell you a story uh, before I get into the sermon today. I'm I'm gonna take you back to my living room back in the 1900s, in 1992. Uh, I don't remember us having quite as nice a recliner as this, but in 1992, this wasn't my chair. Whose chair was this? Dad's chair. I heard a lot of bass in the room, Dad's chair. And, uh, and back in 1992, I've gotta tell you about the greatest basketball game that ever was played in college basketball. It happened in 92. And I wasn't sitting in this chair, I was sitting in the floor. I was actually sitting in a Duke Blue Devil beanbag I had received for Christmas that year. And uh, the Duke Blue Devils, my favorite team growing up, had won the national championship the year before. And they were playing in the Elite Eight against another blue team. Anybody remember this game? Yeah, somebody already hollered at me, the Kentucky Wildcats. And in 1992, I was the remote control. Did anybody grow up being the remote control? Yeah, uh, yeah, all right. My mother and father, they were big, big focused on the family, James Dobson people. We didn't have cable television, but praise God, we had an antenna that would pick up the basketball game in the Elite Eight. Uh, so I wasn't just the remote control, I was also the antenna. How many of you guys grew up with an antenna you had to turn? Yeah, so we had to turn the antenna to pick up, you know, uh, ABC, NBC, I think we got CBS, and then uh, every once in a while in the fall and the winter, we picked up PBS, all right? So we could watch, uh, you know, um, I, you know, Sesame Street, this kind of thing. Anyway, another here or there. But 1992, I'm in the floor. We're watching the Duke Blue Devils play the Kentucky Wildcats. And this game, y'all, was epic. It still gets named all the time. I was actually thinking about telling you this story that I was gonna tell you it's arguably the greatest game of all time. But you know what? There's no argument in it. This is the greatest basketball, college basketball game of all time. And it was a, it was a fight from the very beginning. They, both teams Fantastic teams, NBA greats on both of these teams would go on to play in the NBA for years, decades. Two incredible coaches, Rick Pitino and Mike Krzyzewski, and it was back and forth and back and forth, and it goes into overtime. 
And my Duke Blue Devils, my childhood hero was the point guard for Duke named Bobby Hurley. He was scrappy. He just had, he was a bulldog. He had that dog in him, you know what I mean? And uh, he, was, he was a bulldog. But they were going up against this UK team, Jamal Mashburn, and it was back and forth. It comes down to the wire. And Duke is up by like four and ends up going back and forth. And then Kentucky gets a, a steal, a stop and a steal, drives the ball down to their end of the court, calls timeout with seven seconds left. Down by one. They're in overtime. Goes over to the sideline. They draw up a play. They end up coming out of the timeout. 7.1 seconds left. They, they inbound the ball, and the, pray, the play breaks down. And so the point guard is forced to just kind of run and throws up kind of this crazy shot with double hands in his face and makes this bank teardrop shot that should have never gone in. And I immediately, my heart just fell. Kentucky's up by one now with 2.1 seconds left. And I, I don't know if any of you guys care enough about sports, but I'm just letting you into my heart. I start crying. I'm weeping. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, this game is over, man. There's no, how are we gonna come down to the wire? This game is over. 2.1 seconds left, timeout. And Mike Krzyzewski, Coach K, draws up a play. And some of y'all remember the play. They come out of the timeout. Anybody remember who inbounds this ball? Several of you, Grant Hill, an NBA great, inbounds this ball. He throws it the length of the court all the way over to the opposite foul line where everybody's favorite college basketball player catches the ball. Who, ca who caught the ball? Christian Leitner, sure did. Catches it up high, takes one dribble to the right, bam, turns and gives us that beautiful fadeaway. And what happens? Swish. And you know what this little boy did? I lost my mind. I still had tears on my face because I thought they had lost, but now they've won this unbelievable shot. It was a complete miracle, and I'm screaming. I'm hugging my dad. I'm hugging my mom. Cell phones weren't even invented, everybody. No such thing. Nobody to text, can't check Twitter, no, no Instagram replay. I go outside, and I just yell, Wah! I'm going crazy. I'm running around the house. I'm celebrating. It was the greatest college basketball game of all time. Still to this day, some 30 years later, people still talk about it as the best basketball game of all time. Amazing. Amazing. And for this Duke fan, when they went back-to-back -back and they celebrated back-to-back -back national championships, core memory, it locked me in forever to being a Duke Blue Devil fan. And, uh, and I know growing up in the state of North Carolina where I did, everybody either pulled for Duke or NC State. Nobody really cares about the Tar Heels. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Everybody in North Carolina is a Tar Heel, generally speaking. But here, why in the world are you talking about that on Christmas Eve service? Here's why I want you to know. I think that's a beautiful framework. The dynamics of a great ball game, the dynamics of a great movie, it gets you down to the absolute bottom, the valley where you think, no way, there's no hope. We're lost. All is lost. Tears on our faces, turmoil in our hearts. And then somehow there is this miracle that occurs, that changes everything. And I want you to know that that is such a small, super small, super, super small shadow of the Christmas story that I think many of us have celebrated Christmas for our entire lives and we have yet to really see the absolute unbelievable good news right in the nick of time 
salvation that experience. I think today, by the end of this service, you're going to, listen to me, even if you've been around Christmas and you've been following Jesus for years, you're going to see Christmas in a brand new way because there is something that Christmas is called to celebrate that I want to make sure you get a hold of this year that stays with you for the rest of your life. This is so important that even after Christmas morning on the 25th, we're almost there, by the way. The wait is almost over. You'll open up your presents and on Boxing Day, the 26th, when everybody's like trying to decide what they're going to do for the rest of the holidays, and you start to get those like those Christmas doldrums, you're not going to have Christmas doldrums because you're going to be closer to what Christmas is all about than you were on the 25th of December. And I want you to get a hold of that today because it'll change everything. So over the last four weeks, we've been opening up the word and talking about this thread, and we've been tracing this thread that's been all through the scriptures, this thread of God with us. We've talked about the heart of God from the very beginning, and today I'm going to point us towards the future, but before we do, if you're here for the first time and you're just leaning in, I want to make sure I get you up to speed. And so this, this idea of God being with us, where does it come from? It comes from the very beginning. Before there was earth, before there was us, there was God. And God, in his nature and in his essence, is a communal God. So I'd love for you to take a couple of notes because I think they'll encourage you. But here's a quote that I think will get us started in the right direction from a pastor named Ray Ortland. He says this about God. He says, I love the Christian claim that ultimate reality is not cold, dark, outer space. But ultimate reality is a person in community bright radiant, joyous, volcanic with exuberance, so irrepressible that he created us to share in his joy about who he is. The implications are endless. And I think Pastor Ortland nails this, that the God of the Bible, the God of Christmas, in his essence, before we were here, was in community. And one of those implications we've been discussing that we celebrate, by the way, all Christmas season, and you hear, even if you don't hear it in church, is that God is a communal God and he creates a communal people. And that God designed us, not for loneliness, not for outer darkness, but in his own character, in his, in his own nature, and that nature is a relational nature. And so here's a truth I'd love for you to jot down. The heart of God, you need to know this, is that he wants to be with you and me. He wants to be with us, and he wants us to be with him. This is the nature and character of God. I need you to get this. This is a presupposition for a whole bunch of Bible, and it also is one of those things that can actually remove and expose some of the lies from the enemy that perhaps you've been feeling that God doesn't want to be with you that you're too far gone, that you've done too much, that you've not lived enough good things or done enough good things. And I want you to know from the very beginning, God in his nature and in his, his beautiful perfection created us as a reflection of him. So one of the things that I've been thinking about that you can test this with me, I think God's an extrovert. He wants us to be in great relationship with him because he's in a great relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before humanity even began. And the story of the Bible is that story of God and humanity together in perfection. In the garden, the Bible tells us in Genesis 1 and 2, and you know you're perhaps familiar with this story. Beauty, no, no death, no suffering, perfection. Until ultimately, though, in Genesis chapter 3, the problem enters the story, and the problem that takes us to the depths of despair is that we, humanity, 
through our first mother and father, Adam and Eve, look at me, we chose fruit over fellowship. We chose stuff over God. And when we decided to reach for, and Eve specifically grabs the fruit, what she is doing is not just a little small thing. What she's doing is she and Adam are putting themselves in the seat of God, and they are choosing things over that beautiful relationship, God with us, that we were intended for, that we were, we were created for. Now, I need to take you on the path of the bad news here, because this is where all of the hurt and pain of all of our life comes from. Everything that we experience when it comes to lack and loss and sin and death comes from this. I wrote down a few things I'd like to read them to you. Adam and Eve preferred the fruit of the tree rather than fellowship with God. And once there was no suffering, once there was no pain, once there was, listen to me, there was no evil, once there was no death, can you believe that? But now, now every single human being that ever has lived or will live will die. And not only will they die, Every single one of us will suffer in some way, shape, or form before we die. That's the truth of our world. Natural disasters happen now. Floods happen now. Avalanches happen now. Tsunamis and hurricanes, tornadoes, but not just natural disasters. AIDS happens now. And cancer happens now. And heart disease happens now. Slavery happens now. Yes, it still happens now. Sex trafficking happens now. Droughts, famines, freak accidents, wars, and genocide, yes, even in 2023, are still happening now. And why are those things happening? What, where did they come from? What's this all about? It's because, listen to me, we wanted fruit over fellowship. It all stems from our natural inclination in our sinful desires to want things over God. But even in the midst of that, as we feel that, and some of you feel it intimately this Christmas season as we're reminded of loved ones that used to celebrate Christmas that aren't here this year. That's real, isn't it? As you're reminded of the way things used to be perhaps and there's even nostalgia as you think back to the innocence of being a child in your own home, but now you've lived a little bit of life and now you have to overcome a little bit of cynicism during Christmas. Where did that come from? As hearts get harder and it's, it's difficult as you get older to enjoy things and you wonder, what's that about? Well, I want you to know as I take a time out right here, this is where the tears stream down my face as a young man watching my team lose and I thought it was all over. But the good news is, and Christmas celebrates, it is not all over. There is a God who though we chose fruit over fellowship, he chooses us in spite of us. And the good news of the gospel is that though we are broken and sinful is that God comes after us and pursues relationship with us. This is the story of the gospel. He still comes after those of us who would turn our backs to him and go through all the things in life we go through. He's still coming after you, sir, ma'am. He's pursuing you. He loves you. He, he can't help himself. And listen, it's not because you and I and our relationship are gonna complete him. It's just his very nature. He wants to show you that he has forgiveness for you. And so the Christmas message is this message of Emmanuel that the prophet tells us, Isaiah, in chapter seven of Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus Christ would arrive, Isaiah tells us these words. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you world a sign, 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive, and she will bear a son, and she shall call his name, what, New Spring? She shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, by the way, God with us. I want you to write that down. Emmanuel means God with us. The celebration of Christmas is the reality that God pursues us in spite of us, loves us when we are unlovable. And we don't have to, listen to me, do anything lovely to get him to pursue us. He comes after us in our lack of loveliness. And so we celebrate at Christmas, and maybe you've heard another word that I wanna make sure we get definition for. We celebrate Advent. And what Advent means is Advent means arrival. That's what the word Advent means. We celebrate the arrival of a savior, an arrival of a Messiah, And so we celebrate the fact that 2,000 years ago, there was a virgin that conceived and gave birth to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And this, by the way, is the first advent, but I need everybody on all of our campuses to hold up the number two. Show them to me, show them to me, show them to me up in the balcony. Two, 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 two. Listen, I want you to get this. This is so important. There is not, not just one arrival, but there is two. And what I want to do for the remainder of our time is I want to show you the value of the one that even clarifies for us the second arrival. You see, Christ has come, but I need you to know that Christ is coming again. And so this very first arrival, many of us have in our yards in the nativity or on our mantles or sitting somewhere in our house is this beautiful manger scene. It was the one, by the way, if you remember the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Kevin McAllister hid in that first arrival manger scene. If you remember when he was getting chased down by Joe Pesci, that bad guy. He hid in that manger scene and we read about this beautiful first arrival and in Luke chapter two, verses six and seven, it says this, and while they, they as Mary and Joseph were there, there is Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and she laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. And you know the story of his first arrival. We sing songs about it, don't we? We put pictures up over it. We really focus on it a ton, especially in the Bible Belt. We love celebrating his first arrival. We we know that the shepherds came. We know that the heavenly host harked and maybe Harold, the angel sang. His name's not Harold, by the way. Hark and Harold and all the angels, they came and sang. And they came and sang to the newborn king. We know that there was kings from the east, magi, that would come and they would bear gifts. We know this scene. We're We're seeing it full well, and it is the beginning of the Lord's salvation to come and to redeem and rescue and renew our decision to choose fruit over fellowship. This entire story, I think it's encompassed by this beautiful piece of art that maybe some of you have seen. I want to put it up and show you. This piece of art is a picture that was Drawn, actually, the medium here is crayon and pencil. Isn't that amazing? And uh, it was drawn by uh, a sister. Sister, let me give you her name. She's a nun, and her name is Sister Grace Remington. And she's actually a nun in Iowa. Isn't that wild? How many of y'all have seen this picture before? Show of hands in the room. Yeah, some of you. But I want to leave it up here, and I want you to see some observations, because this really gets at the heart of the arrival of Jesus, our King. Let me ask you a question. How many kinds of fruit do you see in the picture? How many kinds? So you've got the fruit of the arch, that's to remind us of the garden, but then you've got this other piece of fruit, it's different than that in the arch, that's in the hand of Eve, you see it? And then you've got this other fruit, it's not not 
fruit you eat at all, is it? Or is it Jesus Christ in utero in Mary? The name of this piece of art is called Mary and Eve. Eve is on your left and Eve represents the earth. She was made like Adam from the earth and then taken from his side and she represents the earth. And then um, Mary represents the heavens, white and blue. And this is when heaven and earth meet. There's a couple of other things I want you to notice. I want you to look at the body language specifically of the ladies. I want you to look at their eyes. What are they looking at? You can see that Eve is, she sits just a little further down than Mary because she's just been broken or pushed or twisted by sin and shame and guilt. I think she really does a beautiful job of capturing that essence of shame and guilt. Eve's eyes are looking at the ground. She's weighed down by her decision to walk away from God. But then what does Mary do? I can just see Mary, although this is a still picture, I can see Mary taking her hand and lifting Eve's eyes from the ground to her womb. And she's making sure that Eve sees that hope is here. I can see her grabbing Eve's hand and pulling it to her stomach like some of you ladies have done. The baby's kicking. He's alive. He's real. The Savior's coming. He's on the way. The Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. Hope is here. And I think it's a beautiful picture that captures the essence of the, the whole story of the gospel of the Old Testament. The last thing I want to draw your attention to is the lady's feet. Week one of this God with us series, we talked about this exact passage in Genesis chapter three, but this is something that God actually spoke. When Adam and Eve chose fruit over fellowship, God comes, Adam, where are you? Looking for him in the cool of the morning, you remember? They had hidden themselves in fig leaves and then when they are confronted, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent and God delivers the curse. The curse to Adam and Eve, but he speaks a specific curse to the serpent Lucifer, Satan, the devil. He says in Genesis 3, he says, into the future, you, Lucifer, Satan, will continue to bruise their heel, but I am sending one that will bruise your head. As a matter of fact, he says in some translations, I am sending one that will crush your head. And so here we have Mary's foot on the neck of Satan himself because the head-crushing Savior is on the way. The wait is almost over. And so we celebrate this with beautiful songs, songs like we all sang just a moment ago at all of our campuses, songs like joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven, heaven, nature sing. Now what's wild about that beautiful song we sing at Christmas is that Isaac Watts wrote it in 1719 and he wasn't writing it about the first advent, he was writing it about the second. Joy to the World was written about the second coming of Jesus not the manger scene with Mary. Now we have made it a manger scene because it's a beautiful song to sing and remind us, but here's what I wanna make sure we get in our hearts this Christmas. 
We have got this manger scene from 2,000 years ago and these beautiful songs like Joy to the World. And I want you to know it's not just Joy to the World. Did you know that O Come, O Come, Emmanuel was not written about the manger either, but was written about the second coming of Jesus? These rich songs that we sing in our Christmas programs and we worship God in our Christmas season, they were, they were inspiring for Christmas Advent 1, but they were actually written for Advent number 2, which is, I believe, where God wants to lift our eyes today, that we might allow a glimpse back at the manger to put our eyes headlong looking towards his second coming because the wait is almost over. So Christmas does two things, and we've just put it up in front of you, but Christmas, the manger, Advent 1, has us looking back towards the past. But Advent 2 is calling us Jesus Christ coming again in the second coming. I want you to know that this Christmas season, as you sing joy to the world and O come, O come, Emmanuel, you are even closer to the second coming of Christ, the second arrival, the second advent, and that's where your heart finds its hope, its strength, and its joy. Here's what that second advent will provide. John writes about it in John chapter 21. It's incredibly encouraging, especially if you're experiencing suffering and loss in this Christmas season. Here's what John writes. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a what? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is where? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, Emmanuel, God with us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Side note, you can trust them. You can lean on them. You can hope for them. They're true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, this inheritance, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Listen, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion, their inheritance, will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, at Christmas, we don't just look back 2,000 years ago to Jesus in a manger, but at Christmas we look forward and we anticipate Jesus' second arrival. We look forward and we anticipate he's coming again. This is the kind of hope that fills up the hearts of saints for 2,000 years. This is the kind of hope that filled up the heart of Johnny Erickson Tata. Maybe you've heard of her, but Johnny at 17 had a diving accident and she landed on her neck and she had a spinal cord injury that would leave her in a wheelchair for the next 60 plus years of her life. She's still alive. And so in her 70s, Johnny looking forward to the second arrival of Jesus, hoping for that day, has this beautiful quote that I think will encourage you. She says these words, she says, 
I still can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers and atrophied muscles and gnarled knees and no feeling from my shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light and bright and clothed with righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that this gives someone spinal cord injured like me or someone who is cerebral palsied or brain injured or has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives to someone who is a manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, new hearts, new minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. This is Johnny's hope, but I want you to know this is all of our hope. For all of the disability and the brokenness and the sin and the, and the mourning, if you're lonely this year, Trust that there's a time coming when you will not be alone. If you've had a face full of tears this year, if you've cried maybe harder than you've ever cried in any other year, trust that there's a God in heaven who is, who is soon to be here that's gonna wipe away every tear. There'll be no more crying. If you've lost someone this year and you look back over this year and I want you to know in Christ there is a hope that we'll all be together again because God is going to be with us. This is the kind of hope that fills up not just people like Johnny, but it, it filled up Ernest Robeson. And Ernest had a son that was born, and as he was being born, they had all kinds of complications in his birth, and he lost oxygen, his son Matthew did, and they weren't sure that he was going to live. They told mom and dad, he's not gonna come out of the NICU ICU, he might live for a week. He ended up living for 11 years. And over those 11 years, mom and dad took care of him. He was confined to a wheelchair, and then in his 11th year, their son Matthew, who was joy-filled and a beautiful boy confined to a wheelchair, went home to be with Jesus. And dad, who was an engineer by trade, decided to become an artist. And he designed his son a beautiful headstone to remind him and all of us that we are not made for this world. And we have another home we're looking forward to. And though we open up Christmas presents and we celebrate that Christ has come 2,000 years ago, I am, I'm begging the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts up with the reality that he is coming again. And everything that we have, we have longed for in this world, it's going to be true in the world to come. That we've chosen fruit over fellowship, but one of the truths of God being with us is we get Christ and with him we get the perfect world we were designed for, for all eternity. And so here's the question I've got to ask you this Christmas season is, is how will you, how will you wait? As you get home later today and you begin the process of whatever your family does for Christmas, maybe you eat a big meal, maybe you go to the in-laws, maybe you have people to your house, maybe you guys do some things this evening. As you go through the, the motions, I want you to know that we get to answer this question, how will we wait? How will we wait on the second arrival of Jesus? How will we wait? How will we let the first arrival cause us to wait for the second? Here's what I want you to catch. I think many of us, like when we drive our car, what's this little, this little mirror called up here when you drive your car? It's called the rear view mirror, right? I think many of us, we've been glancing at the rear view mirror and looking back at 2,000 years ago, the first arrival, and we've actually been driving while we're turned, we're looking back at this 
child in a manger, and it's incredible, it's beautiful, but I believe what God wants to do is he wants us to know that that's, that's a beautiful glimpse we're supposed to take all the time, but we're supposed to turn, and the bigger windshield is where we're supposed to be driving towards, and that Christmas is going to be this beautiful calibrator so that we might look into the reality that we're driving towards where there is no sin, death, cancer, AIDS, no tornadoes, no hurricanes, no freak accidents. There is no war. There is no wheelchair. There is no debilitation. There is no pain and hurt. There's no loneliness. There is no death anymore. And Christmas is a reminder that Christ is coming again. So the question is, how will we wait? And too often I wait like this, in comfort. I wait just like a lazy boy. I mean, I know it's true. I believe it. I read it in my Bible, but I'm really just trying to make myself as comfortable as possible as I wait from this moment till that time to be with Jesus. Maybe if I'm being really honest, this is how I'll wait. Just like this, right here. <sighs> and we manipulate our lives and we, we work our, our jobs and we work our homes in life to try to wait in comfort for that second arrival, for that second reality. And I just believe that God wants to, calls us to not wait like this. Now, some of us, that's not how we wait at all. Some of us, we wait on the edge of our seat because we're nervous. We're really nervous people. And we know that eternity's real and we know there's gotta be more to this life. And so we kind of wait like we wait on blood work at the doctor. Like, uh, what's coming? What exactly is... What exactly is the report gonna be? I wonder, I wonder what the news is gonna be. And so it really is this anxiety. Maybe it's just this low-grade anxiety about eternity. I've been there. I remember one of the scaredest I've ever been in my life. The biggest questions I had is, we're gonna live forever? How are we gonna live forever? As a young man, that was something I wrestled with. Others of us, that's not how we wait at all. You ready? Let me show you how you wait. We wait like this. I've had this conversation when you start talking to people about eternity, and they really, they wait like this. just a flip of a coin. They wait like this. Well, we'll see. Heads heaven, tails hell, I guess. We'll just see. We'll just see. If I'm lucky, and the big guy up in the sky, he, you know, he's the God of love, I've heard somebody say. And they just are waiting with a flip of a coin. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I want you to know I don't believe that's how any of us are called to wait. I believe God wants to give you confidence in how you can wait from this day to the second coming. And I think he showed me this when, when he showed me how my son waits for Christmas. Right now, my son is four, four and a half, and he has no idea what day it is. He doesn't know what day it is, especially when his sisters aren't going to school. He's like, what, what day is today, Dad? You know, he has no idea what day it is. And I am a big-time Christmas person. I don't know if you're like this, but I love Christmas season. Where are you at, Christmas season, people? Love it with all my heart. I wake up in the morning, I turn on the pot of coffee, which is what I do every day of the week. But at Christmas season, I go and I turn on the lights to the Christmas tree. And we don't have one Christmas tree in our house. We have, you guessed it, two. And they're both fake, by the way. Because we have kids and pets. Anyway, we turn the lights on to the Christmas tree. One downstairs that's really pretty and made for pictures, and one upstairs that has all the ugly, tacky gifts that the kids make in preschool. They go up on that Christmas tree, okay? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Come on, y'all. And I turn on the music, and I open my Bible, and we have that potpourri thing that sits on the stove with the oranges and the cloves and the spices, it's filling up the air with cinnamon. Our house smells like Christmas. It's like our atriums. And my son gets up in the morning and he comes down the steps and he's at that place where he like announces that he's up. You know, I'm awake, morning, dad. He wears underoos, that's all he wears to bed now. 
Okay? Comes down the steps in his underoos, blanket over his shoulder. Dad! Is today Christmas? He's done it a half dozen times in the last month. He has no idea what day it is. Is today Christmas? I see the presents, I hear the music, the lights, the, the smells, the sights. It, really, it could be today for all he knows. Is today the day? No, son. We're a month away. No, son. We're three weeks away. No, son. We're, we're nine days away. No, son. We're two days away. But guess what? I get to tell him on Christmas morning. Today's the day. Tomorrow morning, today's the day. But guess what? I get to tell him on the day after Christmas. The wait's almost over, son. Because we're not called to just look back 2,000 years ago and celebrate the birth of a Savior. We're called to look forward towards the day when the king will come and he will absolutely conquer fully and he will relieve us of all of the things that we hate in this earth and he doesn't want us to fall in love with the broken dissatisfaction of this life in the meantime. So Christian, saint, church, put your eyes on the future because the wait is almost over and our king is coming very soon, amen? So let me tell you how you wait because the same prophet that gave us Emmanuel, God with us, in chapter 26, he gave us the way to wait. Here's what he says. Isaiah 26, verse 8, he says, Yes, Lord, walk, here's how I do it. Walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and your renown are the desires of our hearts. This is how we wait. It's an active waiting it's a walking in his ways. It's a serving the way he would want us to, filled by his spirit, loving our neighbors and our coworkers and our families and making his name and renown the desires of our heart. Yes, we have an advent. He did arrive 2,000 years ago, but look at me in my eyes and watch my lips say it. He's coming again soon and the wait is almost over. So look forward to the reality that Christmas is here and he has come and he is coming again. If you'll receive that, would you say amen? Amen. Can I invite you to your feet? And as we respond on our campuses, I want to give you the chance to respond with this news. Some of you knew the news. Maybe you just needed to be reminded of it. And you'll get a chance in a moment as I as I pray and we enter into ministry time, you're gonna get a chance, Christ follower, to come and receive the body and blood of Christ. Check this out, so perfect, only God. What was it Adam and Eve chose over fellowship with God in the garden? They chose what? Fruit over fellowship. So what did Jesus come and say? Remember me every time you gather. Remember me, and I want you to take this in remembrance of me. Come and take of the body and the blood of Christ enter back into fellowship that I've made for you. He even says this, the New Testament does, it says that Jesus Christ hung on a tree. You see, Jesus is our good and perfect fruit. So saint, reject your sin nature. Thank God that he has washed you. Thank God that you have the spirit of the living God in you and you can look forward to the second coming of Christ. And as you come to the table today, take in the body and blood of Jesus and thank God that because of the fruit of Christ, we now have fellowship every day with Jesus, not just at Christmas, but every single day. And he desires that because he wants to be with us and he wants us to be with him. Come and enjoy the table in just a moment. For those of you in the room that perhaps have never given your life to Christ, it's not about religion, it is about relationship. 
Come to the cross. He's pleading with you yet again. And he's saying, I've come in pursuit of you. Come and receive Emmanuel, God, with us so that you might look forward to the second coming of Christ the same way my son is looking forward to Christmas morning. And let's carry that spirit as we wait. Let me pray. And then somebody at your campus will give you some instructions as we respond. Father God, thank you for the good news. Thank you that the wait is over. That soon and very soon you're coming again. I even hear your words echoing in Revelation 22. The very last thing you said, that you're coming again soon. And your church says, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Our hearts are longing for you like a four-year-old boy longing for Christmas morning. Childlike faith. Is today the day? And we're one day closer. And we look forward until that day where we're all together again. So Lord, help us as we wait to walk in your ways, making your heart, your name, your renown, the desires of all of our hearts in this Christmas season. We celebrate you now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.